Well, turn with me uh, to Genesis 50. That's page 44 in those Red Pew Bibles, if you're using that. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I promised my family I wasn't going to sing that. As many of you did, I grew up with that song. As a boy, I loved Mr. Rogers. Now granted, that was long before Pixar and Disney Plus. The game has changed, so to speak. But the puppets, the songs, the curious neighbors dropping in, this was cool stuff for a five-year-old in the mid-80s. And then something happened. My friends and I became teenagers. We became too cool for Mr. Rogers. But then, more recently, something interesting has happened. Mr. Rogers has made a comeback. The resurgence of his popularity is evidenced by a widely praised documentary about his life and a film in which Tom Hanks won an Academy Award for his role as Fred Rogers. All of a sudden you have grown men on their couches trying to hold back tears as they make their kids watch old Mr. Rogers episodes. At least so I'm told. So what's going on here? An academic friend of mine recently wrote about his own journey through life and I, I've edited this just a little bit but this is basically what my friend said in that article. As a young Christian philosopher I wanted to be the confident heresy hunting debater vanquishing the pagans with brilliance and ironclad arguments. As a middle-aged man I dream of being Mr. Rogers. When you're young it's easy enough to confuse strength with dominance. When you're old you realize the feat of character it takes to be meek. In a time of, that's characterized by anxiety and animosity and a lot of fear, Mr. Rogers radiates a kind of calmness and warmth and generosity. People, no matter religious or not so much, not only have grown to admire, once again, Mr. Rogers, but I sense that people want to even in some ways be like him. I think this longing for a different way to exist amidst the cultural dumpster fire that we're experiencing also explains the recent success of another show, which in many ways is very different, Ted Lasso, with its record 20 Emmy nominations. Now, by mentioning Ted Lasso, I need to make a blanket disclaimer here. I, I'm not recommending it to everyone. I've told my kids they can, they can watch it in a few years, maybe around the age of 40. The show is crass and it's far from fa family-friendly viewing, but I'm, I'm interested this morning in Ted Lasso as a cultural phenomenon. For the lead character is a kind of Mr. Rogers for mature audiences only. Ted, I'll, let me just, for some of you who haven't, haven't seen it, Ted is an American football coach 
for you American football fans, think Dabo Sweeney, okay, turned English Premier League soccer coach, which is kind of funny and interesting in and of itself, but the, the allure of the show is Ted cares about everyone he meets and forgives even those who are viciously cruel to him. So the show's success is not rooted in dirty jokes and foul language. There's plenty of that, unfortunately, and, and those shows, well, so many of our shows are like that these days. But, 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 this, but the success is in its tapping into this human longing to be at peace. It speaks to our desires as relational creatures to love and to be loved rightly. Who doesn't want to be someone who has the capacity to forgive to live without being enslaved to bitterness and anger? Who doesn't want to be free to be grateful and full of hope? No matter if you are a Christian here today or you are a skeptic, there's something about catching a glimpse of moral beauty, maybe in some surprising places, even in fictional characters that make us want to reflect something of that same beauty and character in our own lives. And so too, you don't need to be a Christian to be pulled into Joseph's life, this story we've been studying this summer. Joseph, as any human, sure has his own frailties and faults and maturing to do as we've seen in this story. But who wouldn't want to be like Joseph? We've seen over the summer that Joseph kind of has this Midas touch. Everything he touches seems to turn into gold. Need some dreams interpreted? Joseph's your guy. Need a strong leader to save the world? Joseph. He's wise. He's highly, he'd be called today a highly effective leader. And yet he's not self-focused. His success hasn't gone to his head. So when he has a ch chance to bask in his own abilities in front of Pharaoh, he says, no, no, Pharaoh, God's going to interpret your dreams. This isn't about me. He disciplines himself from making impulsive decisions. We saw this in his ability not to sleep with a powerful woman. He's a man of integrity and strength, and he's also a man of compassion and forgiveness. And we see that in our text this morning. Look, starting in Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave his command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now in contrast to Joseph, his brothers here seem afraid. Now that dad has died, they fear Joseph will come back and take his revenge. After all, this is, and we know this all too well, this is what powerful people do. They wait until the right time. They don't burn bridges unnecessarily because they want to get stuff done. They put on their happy face. But when they have the opportunity to settle the score, they do it. That's how things have always worked. But that's not Joseph. And we might say, you know, but who would blame him if he did do that? I mean, 
there's probably, probably none of us in here who had their brothers sell them into slavery and tell, your father that, tell their father that you're, you're, that you're dead. In fact, I, I'm, I'm, I'm almost 100% sure that's never happened to any of us. If anyone has reasons to be bitter or callous, hardened by life, it's Joseph. But here we see in this text, instead of Joseph still not being able to get over what happened, it's his brothers who are the ones who haven't been able to move on. His brothers are eaten up by fear and guilt. We know what this is like. We fear our inability to stay in control, so we manipulate. Our guilt drives us to impulsively blame everyone else and then to assume the worst of the, to assume the worst of them while we ignore our own faults. Combine guilt and fear, and the result is, is that even people who are taken care of in every worldly way find themselves plagued by a, a malaise of anxious discontentment. Yes, our problem is we want to be Joseph. But if we're honest, we're more often like his brothers here. We might aspire to be Mr. Rogers, but if we're honest, many of us are more like Oscar the Grouch, with flashes of Darth Vader thrown in on the side. In Joseph, we see a way to exist in this messed up world that isn't characterized by bitterness and regret and anger but by forgiveness and hope. Deep down inside, we want that. But I think also for many of us, you know, you're, many of you in here are too battle-tested to think you can just change your behavior. Sure, you see that, you think that would be nice, but that's a character on a screen, that's Joseph in this text, and I can't get there. You live long enough or you get yourself far enough into a hole and you begin to think, I can't change, I can't do it. You're so angry at life, you get so down on yourself, you become so frustrated by others, you spiral deeper and deeper into yourself and you can give up hope. You wanna be like Joseph, you wanna radiate towards other people to love and care for them but you know you can't just grit your way to changing who you are and what you feel. Well, this morning I want to say you're right. You can't. You can't. But the good news is, is once you get disillusioned with the gospel of self-trust, Once you give up on that gospel, you're actually a prime candidate for the gospel of grace. This morning, I want us to look really quickly at just three postures to open yourself up to this grace, to the gospel of grace. Number one, allow yourself to be humbled by reality. Allow yourself to be humbled by reality. We have to stop sugarcoating life. Look at the first thing Joseph does at the end of verse 17. His brothers come to him. He recognizes things still aren't quite right here. 
And it tells us Joseph wept when they spoke to him. For all Joseph's strength and skill as a leader, and he's got a lot of that, he's more Mr. Rogers than John Wayne. Ruggedly pulling yourself up by the bootstraps is not what we see in Joseph. Have you noticed from the summer study that Joseph seems to always be weeping? He's always crying. I mean, facing up to reality means facing up to the devastating impact of sin and being moved by that. I do wonder if in all of our busyness, in all of our activities, are we really just distracting ourselves from how messed up things are? Facing up to reality means not drinking or binge watching or shopping or working or activating your sadness away. Those are crutches which will not always last. To flourish, to be blessed as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, we must, always, we must also be people who lament this broken world. Like Joseph, Jesus wasn't always bubbly. While Jesus was happy enough to go to a good party, he wasn't the man of many jokes. He was the man of many sorrows. It wasn't that Jesus wasn't flourishing, but flourishing in a fallen world doesn't look like stoic indifference, but rather a love that weeps over how sin is ravaging God's good creation. Tears are the first step on the path to hope. So don't hide from tears. We should lament. Number two, let God be God. Number one, allow yourself to be humbled by reality. Number two, let God be God. Look at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for, for am I in the place of God? Now I think there's a bit of irony here. We can imagine his brothers thinking, well, yeah, kind of you are. You hold our fate in your hand. You seem to kind of be in control. And surely Joseph would have himself been tempted into kind of slipping into this mindset. Now surely he would not have gone around saying, he is God. But like, like us, who who have the conveniences of the modern world at our fingertips, we too can be tempted, as it's so easy for successful and wealthy people to be tempted in, to go around acting like we are little gods, righteously playing judge and jury, claiming a kind of omnicompetence over all matters, meting out punishment on anyone who tries to challenge us but not Joseph. Joseph reminds us of this obvious truth. We're not God. And when we try to play his part, we, we're, we're trying to play a role that we aren't up for. And we will eventually be crushed under that pressure. So we have to learn to let God be God. Finally, number three, look to a sovereign God who is good. Look to a sovereign God who is good. Look at verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive 
as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And Joseph, we see a person whose hope, whose kindness isn't contingent on circumstances. We see in his response, not a veneer of southern niceness, but a generosity and a true love that radiates outward. He doesn't hang any of their actions over their head here. He's forgiven them so he's able to comfort them. He has the resources to do so. The victim has become the pastor and the counselor. How in the world can he do that? He can because he believes that not even their evil actions, their evil actions that were really evil, but not even their evil can thwart the good plans of God. He believes that his God is so big that he takes whatever is bad and ultimately uses for his good. Look at verse 24. 24, as we we closed, this is the closing of the book of Genesis. It jumps forward many years and we hear Joseph again speaking to his brothers. He says, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. What a closing to a book. All through Genesis, there's this There's a righteous line that's pointing forward. This one from the woman who will destroy the evil one. The readers are carried along wondering, is it Abel? Is it Seth? Is it Noah? Is it Abraham? Is it Isaac? Is it Jacob? Is it Joseph? But we shouldn't miss that what started with such promise in Genesis 1, with life and beauty radiating out from God through his creation, ends with a dead man in a coffin. It is right and good for us to look at Joseph. It's right and good for us to look at Fred Ro- the Fred Rogers of the world. It's right and good for us to look at the John Stott- Stotts of our world and in some sense to follow them. But we better not forget that if we're just following humans, our journey to find hope and love and peace will end in a coffin, far away from our true home. That's where Joseph's story here would end. And yet there would be one, there would be one who would come from this line long after Joseph, a man of many sorrows, whose own brothers rejected him, whose people handed him over to be killed who too was buried, but the grave could not hold him. Joseph expressed faith in a God who would be working to fulfill his promises even after his own death, and this gave him a peace that allowed Joseph to die well. But we see what Joseph didn't fully get to see. We see a God who has taken the evil actions of people, just as Joseph saw. But now we see it 
in this ultimate way in that he allows evil people to crucify the Messiah, the very Messiah who came to save them, and yet God turns that and uses that and says, that's always been my plan. We see what the Apostle Paul saw when he penned the words that we heard just a minute ago. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own love but gave him up for us all, how he how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And as we look to the cross, we see that. Can you believe that this morning? If you do, if you open yourself up to that truth, then something magical can begin to happen. I've seen it. I've experienced it. 2,000 years of church history, people have been experiencing this. They begin to see the world differently. It opens up to them. You can begin to feel somewhere deep in your bones this love, this new creation, breaking into this world and into your heart. You begin to see a world full of God's mercies. How he even turns suffering and evil and he uses it for good in your life. You want to be at peace. You want to be able to forgive. You want to, you want to be able to, to, to feel and mourn and yet hope. You want to joyfully radiate outward. These are good and beautiful things. But you can't without the grace of God. Cling to Christ this morning. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are left to ourselves. Even our good works are, are filthy rags. Even when we experience some moments of progress, Lord, we confess we're so quick to, to bask in our own glory, to become self-righteous Pharisees. Lord, may we give up on our own self-improvement projects and turn to you and by the power of your grace by the power of your spirit will you change us and we pray this in Christ's name amen